Chapter One of the Rainbow Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Rainbow Trail by Zane Gray. Red Lake. Shefford halted his tired horse and gazed with slowly realizing eyes. A league-long slope of sage rolled and billowed down to Red Lake, a dry red basin, denuded and glistening, a hollow in the desert, a lonely and desolate door to the vast wild and broken upland beyond. All day Shefford had plodded onward with the clear horizon line a thing unattainable, and for days before he had ridden the wild bare flats and climbed the rocky desert benches. The great colored reaches and steps had led endlessly onward and upward through dim and deceiving distance. A hundred miles of desert travel, with its mistakes and lessons and intimations, had not prepared him for what he now saw. He beheld what seemed a world that knew only magnitude. Wonder and awe fixed his gaze, and thought remained aloof. Then that dark and unknown Northland flung a menace at him. An irresistible call had drawn him to this seamed and peaked border of Arizona, this broken battlement wilderness of Utah upland, and at first sight they had frowned upon him, as if to warn him not to search for what lay hidden beyond the ranges. But Shefford thrilled with both fear and exultation. This was the country which had been described to him. Far across the Red Valley, Far beyond the ragged line of Black Mesa and Yellow Range lay the wild canyon with its haunting secret. Red Lake must be his Rubicon. Either he must enter the unknown to seek, to strive, to find, or turn back and fail, and never know and be always haunted. A friend's strange story had prompted his singular journey. A beautiful rainbow with its mystery and promise had decided him. Once in his life he had answered a wild call to the kingdom of adventure within him, and once in his life he had been happy. But here in the horizon-wide face of that upflung and cloven desert he grew cold. He faltered even while he felt more fatally drawn. As if impelled, Shefford started his horse down the sandy trail, but he checked his former far-reaching gaze. It was the month of April, and the waning sun lost heat and brightness. Long shadows crept down the slope ahead of him, and the scant sage deepened its gray. He watched the lizards shoot like brown streaks across the sand, leaving their slender tracks. He heard the rustle of pack rats as they darted into their brushy homes. The whir of a low-sailing hawk startled his horse. Like ocean waves, the slope rose and fell its hollows choked with sand, its ridgetops showing scantier growth of sage and grass and weed. The last ridge was a sand dune, beautifully ribbed and scalloped and lined by the wind, and from its knife-sharp crest a thin, wavering sheet of sand blew, almost like smoke. Shefford wondered why the sand looked red at a distance, for here it seemed almost white. It rippled everywhere, clean and glistening, always leading down. Suddenly 
Shefford became aware of a house looming out of the barrenness of the slope. It dominated that long white incline, grim, lonely, forbidding. How strangely it harmonized with the surroundings. The structure was octagon-shaped, built of uncut stone, and resembled a fort. There was no door on the sides exposed to Shefford's gaze, but small apertures two-thirds of the way up probably served as windows and portholes. The roof appeared to be made of poles covered with red earth. Like a huge cold rock on a wide plain, this house stood there on the windy slope. It was the outpost of the trader Presbury, of whom Shepherd had heard at Flagstaff and Tuba. No living thing appeared in the limit of Shepherd's vision. He gazed shudderingly at the unwelcoming habitation, and at the dark eye-like windows, at the sweep of barren slope merging into the vast red valley, at the bold, bleak bluffs. Could anyone live here? The nature of that sinister valley forbade a home there, and the spirit of the place hovered in the silence and space. Shefford thought irresistibly of how his enemies would have consigned him to just such a hell. He thought bitterly and mockingly of the narrow congregation that had proved him a failure in the ministry, that had repudiated his ideas of religion and immortality and God, that had driven him, at the age of twenty-four, from the calling forced upon him by his people. As a boy, he had yearned to make himself an artist. His family had made him a clergyman. Fate had made him a failure. A failure only so far in his life, something urged him to add, for in the lonely days and silent nights of the desert he had experienced a strange birth of hope. Adventure had called him, but it was a vague and spiritual hope, a dream of promise, a nameless attainment that fortified his wilder impulse. As he rode around the corner of the stone house, his horse snorted and stopped. A lean, shaggy pony jumped at the sight of him, almost displacing a red, long-haired blanket that covered an Indian saddle. Quick thuds of hoofs and sand drew Shefford's attention to a corral made of peeled poles, and here he saw another pony. Shefford heard subdued voices. He dismounted and walked to an open door. In the dark interior he dimly descried a high counter, a stairway, a pile of bags of flour, blankets, and silver-ornamented objects. But the persons he had heard were not in that part of the house. Around another corner of the octagon-shaped wall he found another open door, and through it saw goatskins and a mound of dirty sheep wool, black and brown and white. It was light in this part of the building. When he crossed the threshold, he was astounded to see a man struggling with a girl, an Indian girl. She was straining back from him, panting and uttering low guttural sounds. The man's face was corded and dark with passion. The scene affected Shefford strangely. Primitive emotions were new to him. Before Shefford could speak, the girl broke loose and turned to flee. She was an Indian, and this place was the uncivilized desert, but Shefford knew terror when he saw it. Like a dog, the man rushed after her. It was instinct that made Shefford strike, and his blow laid the man flat. He lay stunned a moment, then raised himself to a sitting posture. 
his hand to his face, and the gaze he fixed upon Shefford seemed to combine astonishment and rage. "'I hope you're not Presby,' said Shefford slowly. He felt awkward, not sure of himself. The man appeared about to burst into speech, but repressed it. There was blood on his mouth and his hand. Hastily, he scrambled to his feet. Shefford saw this man's amaze and rage change to shame. He was tall and rather stout. He had a smooth, tanned face, soft of outline, with a weak chin. His eyes were dark. The look of him in his corduroys and his soft shoes gave Shefford an impression that he was not a man who worked hard. By contrast with a few other worn and rugged desert men Shefford had met, this stranger stood out strikingly. He stooped to pick up a soft felt hat, and, jamming it on his head, he hurried out. Shefford followed him and watched him from the door. He went directly to the corral, mounted the pony, and rode out to turn down the slope toward the south. When he reached the level of the basin, where evidently the sand was hard, he put the pony to a lope and gradually drew away. Well, ejaculated Shefford, he did not know what to make of this adventure. Presently he became aware that the Indian girl was sitting on a roll of blankets near the wall. With curious interest Shefford studied her appearance. She had long raven-black hair, tangled and disheveled. She wore a soiled white band of cord above her brow. The color of her face struck him. It was dark, but not red nor bronzed. It almost had a tinge of gold. Her profile was clear-cut, bold, almost stern. Long black eyelashes hid her eyes. She wore a tight-fitting waist garment of material resembling velveteen. It was ripped along her side, exposing a skin still more richly gold than that of her face. A string of silver ornaments and turquoise and white beads encircled her neck, and it moved gently up and down with the heaving of her full bosom. Her skirt was some gaudy print goods, torn and stained and dusty. She had little feet, encased in brown moccasins, fitting like gloves, and buttoning over the ankles with silver coins. "'Who was that man? Did he hurt you?' inquired Shefford, turning to gaze down the valley where a moving black object showed on the bare sand. "'No savvy,' replied the Indian girl. "'Where's the traitor, Presby?' asked Shefford. She pointed straight down into the red valley. Toe, she said. In the center of the basin lay a small pool of water, shining brightly in the sunset glow. Small objects moved around it, so small that Shefford thought he saw several dogs led by a child. But it was the distance that deceived him. There was a man down there, watering his horses. That reminded Shefford of a duty owing to his own tired and thirsty beast, whereupon he untied his pack, took off the saddle, and was about ready to start down when the Indian girl grasped the bridle from his hand. Me go, she said. He saw her eyes then, and they made her look different. They were as black as her hair. He was puzzled to decide whether or not he thought her handsome. Thanks, but I'll go, he replied, and taking the bridle again, he started down the slope. At every step, he sank into the deep, soft sand. Down a little way, he came upon a pile of tin cans. 
They were everywhere, buried, half-buried, and lying loose, and these gave evidence of how the trader lived. Presently, Shefford discovered that the Indian girl was following him with her own pony. Looking upward at her against the light, he thought her slender, lithe, picturesque. At a distance, he liked her. He plodded on, at length, glad to get out of the drifts of sand to the hard, level floor of the valley. This, too, was sand, but dried and baked hard and red in color. At some season of the year, this immense flat must be covered with water. How wide it was and empty! Shefford experienced again a feeling that had been novel to him, and it was that he was loose, free, unanchored, ready to veer with the wind. From the foot of the slope, the water hole had appeared to be a few hundred rods out in the valley. But the small size of the figures made Shefford doubt, and he had to travel many times a few hundred rods before those figures began to grow. Then Shefford made out that they were approaching him. Thereafter, they rapidly increased the normal proportions of man and beast. When Shefford met them, he saw a powerful, heavily built young man leading two ponies. "'You're Mr. Presby, the trader?' inquired Shefford. "'Yes, I'm Presby, without the mister,' he replied. "'My name's Shefford. I'm knocking about on the desert. Rode from beyond Tuba today.' "'Glad to see you,' said Presby. He offered his hand. He was a stalwart man, clad in gray shirt, overalls, and boots. A shock of tumbled light hair covered his massive head. He was tanned, but not darkly, and there was red in his cheeks. Under his shaggy eyebrows were deep, keen eyes. His lips were hard and set, as if occasion for smile or words was rare, and his big, strong jaw seemed locked. Wish more travelers came knocking around Red Lake, he added. Reckon here's the jumping-off place. It's pretty lonesome, said Shefford hesitating as if at a loss for words. Then the Indian girl came up. Presby addressed her in her own language, which Shefford did not understand. She seemed shy and would not answer. She stood with downcast face and eyes. Presby spoke again, at which she pointed down the valley and then moved on with her pony toward the waterhole. Presby's keen eyes, fixed on the receding black dot, far down that oval expanse. That fellow left rather abruptly, said Shefford constrainedly. Who was he? His name's Willits. He's a missionary. He rode in today with this Navajo girl. He was taking her to Blue Canyon, where he lives and teaches the Indians. I've met him only a few times. You see, not many white men ride in here. He's the first white man I've seen in six months, and you're the second both the same day. Red Lake's getting popular. It's queer, though, his leaving. He expected to stay all night. There's no other place to stay. Blue Canyon is fifty miles away. I'm sorry to say. No, I'm not sorry, either. But I must tell you I was the cause of Mr. Willett's leaving, replied Shefford. How so? inquired the other. Then Shefford related the incident following his arrival. Perhaps my action was hasty, he concluded, apologetically. I didn't think. Indeed, I'm surprised at myself. Presby made no comment, and his face 
was as hard to read as one of the distant bluffs. "'But what did that man mean?' asked Shefford, conscious of a little heat. "'I'm a stranger out here. I'm ignorant of Indians, how they're controlled. Still I'm no fool. If Willits didn't mean evil, at least he was brutal.' "'He was teaching her religion,' replied Presby. His tone held faint scorn and implied a joke, but his face did not change in the slightest. Without understanding just why, Shefford felt his conviction justified and his action approved. Then he was sensible of a slight shock of wonder and disgust. "'I am. I was a minister of the gospel,' he said to Presby. "'What you hint seems impossible. I can't believe it.' "'I didn't hint,' replied Presby bluntly, and it was evident that he was a sincere but closed-mouthed man. Shefford, so you're a preacher. Did you come out here to try to convert the Indians? No, I said I was a minister. I am no longer. I'm just a wanderer. I see. Well, the desert's no place for missionaries, but it's good for wanderers. Go water your horse and take him up to the corral. You'll find some hay for him. I'll get grub ready. Shefford went on with his horse to the pool. The water appeared thick, green, murky, and there was a line of salty crust extending around the margin of the pool. The thirsty horse splashed in and eagerly bent his head, but he did not like the taste. Many times he refused to drink, yet always lowered his nose again. Finally he drank, though not his fill. Shefford saw the Indian girl drink from her hand. He scooped up a handful and found it too sour to swallow. When he turned to retrace his steps, she mounted her pony and followed him. A golden flare lit up the western sky, and silhouetted dark and lonely against it stood the trading post. Upon his return, Shefford found the wind rising, and it chilled him. When he reached the slope, thin gray sheets of sand were blowing low, rising, whipping, falling, sweeping along with soft silken rustle. Sometime the gray veils hid his boots. It was a long, toilsome climb up that yielding, dragging ascent, and he had already been lame and tired. By the time he had put his horse away, twilight was everywhere except in the west. The Indian girl left her pony in the corral and came like a shadow toward the house. Shefford had difficulty in finding the foot of the stairway. He climbed to enter a large loft, lighted by two lamps. Presby was there, kneading biscuit dough in a pan. "'Make yourself comfortable,' he said. The huge loft was the shape of a half-octagon. A door opened upon the valley side, and here, too, there were windows. How attractive the place was in comparison with the impressions gained from the outside. The furnishings consisted of Indian blankets on the floor, two beds, a desk and table, several chairs and a couch, a gun-rack full of rifles, innumerable silver-ornamented belts, bridles, and other Indian articles upon the walls, and in one corner a wood-burning stove with tea-kettle steaming, and a great cupboard with shelves packed full of canned food. Shefford leaned in the doorway and looked out. Beneath him, on a roll of blankets, sat the Indian girl, silent and motionless. He wondered what was in her mind, what she would do, 
how the trader would treat her. The slope now was a long slant of sheeted, moving shadows of sand. Dusk had gathered in the valley. The bluffs loomed beyond. A pale star twinkled above. Shefford suddenly became aware of the intense nature of the stillness about him. Yet as he listened to this silence, he heard an intermittent and immeasurably low moan, a fitful, mournful murmur. Assuredly, it was only the wind. Nevertheless, it made his blood run cold. It was a different wind from that which had made music under the eaves of his Illinois home. This was a lonely, haunting wind, with desert hunger in it, and more which he could not name. Shefford listened to this spirit-brooding sound while he watched night envelop the valley. How black, how thick the mantle, yet it brought no comforting sense of close-folded protection, of walls of soft sleep, of a home. Instead, there was a feeling of space, of emptiness, of an infinite hall down which a mournful wind swept streams of murmuring sand. "'Well, grub's about ready,' said Presby. "'Got any water?' asked Shefford. "'Sure, they're in the bucket. It's rainwater. I have a tank here.' Shefford's sore and blistered face felt better after he had washed off the sand and alkali dust. "'Better not wash your face often while you're in the desert. Bad plan,' went on Presby, noting how gingerly his visitor had gone about his ablutions. "'Well, come and eat.' Shefford marked that if the trader did live a lonely life, he fared well. There was more on the table than twice two men could have eaten. It was the first time in four days that Shefford had sat at a table, and he made up for lost opportunity. His host's actions indicated pleasure, yet the strange, hard face never relaxed, never changed. When the meal was finished, Presby declined assistance. He had a generous thought of the Indian girl, who he said could have a place to eat and sleep downstairs, and then, with the skill and dispatch of an accomplished housewife, cleared the table, after which work he filled a pipe and evidently prepared to listen. It took only one question for Shefford to find that the trader was starved for news of the outside world, and for an hour Shefford fed that appetite, even as he had been done by. But when he had talked himself out, there seemed indication of Presby being more than a good listener. "'How'd you come in?' he asked presently. "'By Flagstaff, across the little Colorado, and through Moen Kopi. "'Did you stop at Moen "'No, what place is that? "'A missionary lives there. "'Did you stop at Tuba? "'Only long enough to drink and water my horse. "'That was a wonderful spring for the desert. "'You said you were a wanderer. "'Do you want a job? "'I'll give you one.' "'No, thank you, Presby.' I saw your pack. That's no pack to travel with in this country. Your horse won't last, either. Have you any money? Yes, plenty of money. Well, that's good. Not that a white man out here would ever take a dollar from you. But you can buy from the Indians as you go. Where are you making for, anyhow? Shefford hesitated, debating in mind whether to tell his purpose or not. His host did not press the question. I see. 
just foot loose and wandering around, went on Presby. I can understand how the desert appeals to you. Preachers lead easy, safe, crowded, bound lives. They're shut up in a church with a Bible and good people. When once in a lifetime they get loose, they break out. Yes, I've broken out beyond all bounds, replied Shefford, sadly. He seemed retrospective for a moment, unaware of the traitor's keen and sympathetic glance, and then he caught himself. I want to see some wild life. Do you know the country north of here? Only what the Navajos tell me, and they're not much to talk. There's a trail goes north, but I've never traveled it. It's a new trail every time an Indian goes that way, for here the sand blows and covers old tracks. But few Navajos ride in from the north. My trade is mostly with Indians up and down the valley. How about water and grass? We've had rain and snow. There's sure to be water. Can't say about grass, though the sheep and ponies from the north are always fat. But say, Shefford, if you'll excuse me for advising you, don't go north. Why? asked Shefford, and it was certain that he thrilled. It's unknown country, terribly broken, as you can see from here, and there are bad Indians biding in the canyon. I've never met a man who had been over the pass between here and Cayenta. The trip's been made, so there must be a trail. But it's a dangerous trip for any man, let alone a tenderfoot. You're not even packing a gun. What is this place, Cayenta? asked Shefford. It's a spring. Cayenta means bottomless spring. There's a little trading post, the last and the wildest, in northern Arizona. Withers, the trader who keeps it, hauls his supplies in from Colorado and New Mexico. He's never come down this way. I never saw him, know nothing of him, except hearsay. Reckon he's a nervy and strong man to hold that post. If you want to go there, better go by way of Keem's Canyon, and then around the foot of Black Mesa. It'll be a long ride, maybe two hundred miles. How far straight north over the pass? Can't say. Upward of seventy-five miles over rough trails, if there are trails at all. I've heard rumors of a fine tribe of Navajos living in there, rich in sheep and horses. It may be true, and it may not. But I do know there are bad Indians, half-breeds and outcasts, hiding in there. Some of them have visited me here. Bad customers. More than that, you'll be going close to the Utah line, and the Mormons over there are unfriendly these days. Why? queried Shefford, again with that curious thrill. They are being persecuted by the government. Shefford asked no more questions, and his host vouchsafed no more information on that score. The conversation lagged, then Shefford inquired about the Indian girl and learned that she lived up the valley somewhere. Presby had never seen her before Willits came with her to Red Lake, and his query brought out the fact that Presby was comparatively new to Red Lake and vicinity. Shefford wondered why a lonely six months there had not made the trader old in experience. Probably the desert did not really give up its secrets. Moreover, this Red Lake house was only an occasionally used branch of Presby's main trading post, which was situated at Willow Springs, fifty miles westward over the mesa. 
I'm closing up here soon for a spell, said Presby, and now his face lost its set hardness and seemed singularly changed. It was a difference of light and softness. Won't be so lonesome over at Willow Springs. I'm being married soon. That's fine, replied Shefford warmly. He was glad for the sake of this lonely desert man. What good a wife would bring into a trader's life? Presby's naive omission, however, appeared to detach him from his present surroundings, and with his massive head enveloped by a cloud of smoke, he lived in dreams. Shefford respected his host's serene abstraction. Indeed, he was grateful for silence. Not for many nights had the past impinged so closely upon the present. The wound in his soul had not healed, and to speak of himself made it bleed anew. Memory was too poignant. The past was too close. He wanted to forget until he had toiled in the heart of this forbidding wilderness, until time had gone by and he dared to face his unquiet soul. Then he listened to the steadily rising roar of the wind. How strange and hollow! The wind was freighted with heavy sand, and he heard it sweep, sweep, sweep by in gusts, and then blow with dull, steady blasts against the walls. The sound was provocative of thought. The moan and rush of wind was no dream. This presence of his, in a night-enshrouded and sand-besieged house of the lonely desert, was reality. This adventure was not one of fancy. True indeed, then, must be the wild, strange story that had led him hither. He was going on to seek, to strive, to find. Somewhere, northward, in the broken fastness, lay a hidden valley, walled in from the world. Would they be there, those lost fugitives, whose story had thrilled him? After twelve years would she be alive, a child grown to womanhood in the solitude of a beautiful canyon. Incredible! Yet he believed his friend's story, and he indeed knew how strange and tragic life was. He fancied he heard her voice on the sweeping wind. She called to him, haunted him. He admitted the improbability of her existence, but lost nothing of the persistent, intangible hope that drove him. He believed himself a man stricken in soul, unworthy through doubt of God, to minister to the people who had banished him, perhaps a labor of Hercules. A mighty and perilous work of rescue, the saving of this lost and imprisoned girl, would help him in his trouble. She might be his salvation. Who could tell? Always as a boy and as a man, he had fared forth to find the treasure at the foot of the rainbow. End of chapter 1